everybody. This is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me. And you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. Uh, This episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. And folks, I'd like to introduce you today to Dana Golden. And Dana and I have been going back and forth now for a, a bit trying to get her on the program. And that's, uh, I've, as many of you know, I've, I've come to the conclusion of a, of a graduate program and have been working on my thesis and all the associated work with that and traveling and working and doing all the great things that being in recovery can do for you because it frees you up to do these things, but it makes you awfully busy. But <laughs> Dana was very patient and she came on uh, the program today and I'm, I'm just so excited to have her because she's going to be talking about the family side of all this. I know I spent a lot of time talking about the addict and and uh, the things, that, the programs and, and all the great things that are available to the addicts, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about the family. And I really am excited to have Dana on today because that's exactly what she's going to be doing. And uh, she's going to talk about uh, talking about the great things that she's done. She's got a book out there. She's got a couple of uh, websites. Uh, she's doing some great work with her ex-husband. And she's going to tell you about all the things that are available to you. And and it's going to be deviating from the standard uh, Al-Anon program that we've talked about on on this, this podcast and some other programs that we've talked about. And she's going to get into some areas like uh, coaching, which is a lot of people ask me about coaching, and I think that it was appropriate for us to have somebody that does that on this program. And she also will talk about interventions and and those things, which a lot of people are curious about. And um, is really, and I think that's most people in the public are aware of interventions and and what they are, at least generally. But uh, Dana will talk to us a bit more about that. So with that, Dana, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for the great introduction. It's wonderful to be here after, like you said, uh, making several uh, times and finally coordinating today to get on your uh, podcast. I'm happy to be a resource and a help to your listeners. And um, I hope it all goes well and exactly what you're looking for. Oh, well, no, it was all all my fault. All my fault that we were going back and forth, but we finally did it. We're uh, getting towards the end of the summer, and uh, things will get back to a, a normal schedule. And uh, now it's the, the honor's mine. And if you would tell us a bit about yourself and, and your background, because it's your background, like a lot of people in the addiction field. A lot of times, it's your your experiences that kind of lead you into this business in the first place. Yeah, and that's the case for me as well. So. Uh, I always lived on the other side of addiction. I had I grew up with a father that had some process addictions. I um, always sought out addicts and relationships to emulate that relationship that I had in my family of origin. Um, I didn't get introduced to, to any kind of help for myself until um, I was in my late 20s and a boyfriend went to treatment for drugs and alcohol. And when I verbally gave his counselor when I dropped him off the laundry list of everything she needed to fix in him so that I could be okay. She simply, without rolling her eyes, I might add, handed me a pamphlet for Al-Anon and said, go to Al-Anon. And I, you know, refuted that and said, no, there's nothing wrong with me. He's the one with all the problems. You need to fix him. And 
she just said go to Al-Anon. So uh, being the duty for girlfriend and never saying no to anybody because I am a uh, people pleaser and very compliant, um, I went to Al-Anon and that was my first introduction to the fact that I had a role and a place in these relationships with the addicts. So, and I quickly learned that I wasn't going for him. I was there to learn and grow for myself. So um, after that, I uh, decided to get into therapy because I knew I needed some more work in that area. And Al-Anon is a great resource, but uh, not necessarily always enough. And then, of course, I devoured every book on um, addiction and recovery and uh, self-help and personal development. And I just kind of became a, a um, junkie of personal growth and, and figuring out my life because everything that had led me to that present, I didn't want to keep repeating in my future. So that's where my journey of recovery started. And um, I work with um, a lot of, so let me just say I'm an interventionist. I'm a family recovery coach. I'm also a recovery coach, but my passion lies really in working with the families. And um, so one of the first things um, that I learned that I helped my families learn is that Al-Anon is a great resource, um, but there's a lot of other resources too. And the reason I'm so passionate about working with families is because there are so many resources for the addict. We know about all the treatment centers, addiction um, therapists, addiction coaches, um, and a lot of times um, our loved ones that have an addiction go off to treatment and the family members are just kind of left in the wake of destruction and not knowing what to do or how to do it and feeling um, very lost because we get so wrapped up in that relationship with the addict that we become someone else. And when that someone and when our addict is removed, we don't know who we are anymore. All our hopes and dreams have now become centered around our addict getting the help they need, getting clean and sober. And we forget that we have a life and we need to find our happiness and joy. And that's why it's so important for family members to get into recovery. And um, I'm often asked, well, why do I need to recover? I'm not an addict. And, you know, we all are recovering from something. We're recovering from a bad relationship. We're recovering from a job loss. We're recovering, recovering from a death in the family. So, I mean, we're always recovering from something. So I just say, you know, don't look at it like um, recovery in a treatment center, we're just, we all need to recover and f- grow in life because once we stop growing, we're kind of stagnant and we might as well, you know, be de- I don't want to say be dead, but when we stop growing, we die, you know, so, uh, to put it simply. So that's my goal is to work with the families and help them find their own recovery, get their lives back on track, find their happiness and joy and not be dependent on if their addict is using their MS and if their addict is not using using them, they're happy. So they need to find their happy aside of what their addict is doing in their life. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I get asked the, the same question when I'm working with families and when people are going through treatment and people say, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is his problem or her problem. Uh, it's not my problem. And what we like to tell people is that it actually is your problem because their use has affected you. In many ways, um, Al-Anon, for example, you, you mentioned Al-Anon. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but the steps in Al-Anon are the same exact steps that are used in AA. And step one in AA is I'm powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. And what we like to tell people is that that's where it comes into play. You're, you, um, you are powerless over your loved one's use of drugs or alcohol, and it has made your life unmanageable. And, and that's what you were talking about in, in your relationships. And the steps then are a way for you to heal yourself. 
um, it may not be an addiction issue on your part, but there are things about yourself that, that need to be worked on as well. And a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people don't understand that. And I, I think in the addiction field, this is the one area, the family members uh, are probably the one area that aren't addressed the way that it, that it should be. At least that's my, my perspective and in, in my journey so far in, in this field. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I do. And that's why it, I made it a point to surround my career by working with the families because there isn't the help out there. And just to, um, you know, take what you said further about that each family member has a role that they play in the addictive relationship because any relationship you're in, people change and adapt to that relationship. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a relationship with an addict, it's a maladaptive role to keep the status quo, to not rock the boat. We walk on eggshells. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of situations that we're, um, we're changing in ourselves to accommodate that the addict in our life. And it's been established years ago. There's six family roles around the addict um, one being the addict and then there's other roles that everybody takes on and they share similar characteristics there's the mascot the caretaker the lost child so there's five roles and I actually have a quiz um, that family members can take Um, it's just a free little resource it can be found at um, danagolden.com backslash quiz and it'll tell you um, the characteristics that you take on, which roles, and then it gives you information about those roles and um, a sequence of emails that'll tell you how to get step out of that role. So it's a great resource for family members that are trying to figure out, well, what's my place in this? What do I do? Um, because the thing that family members don't understand is that um, their addict in their life is trying to do two things. They're trying to be comfortable and they're trying to avoid pain. And when they're comfortable and they're avoiding their pain by using, everybody around them is also enabling that to happen. And so I always tell families, you can't wait for your loved one to get in recovery. You need to start making changes because as long as they stay comfortable, they have no incentive to change. So mm-hmm. if you want your loved one to change, you got to start doing some changes and be the catalyst to making, helping them see that change is necessary and possible. Yeah, it's a very good point. And what a great resource, too. I'm going I'm to definitely check that out. And that's Dana Golden backslash quiz. DanaGolden.com. Oh, DanaGolden.com uh, backslash quiz. Okay. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And anybody can take that quiz. It'll tell you uh, your score in each one of the categories. And then, obviously, whatever category you're highest in is your primary role around the addict. Well, how long have you been doing this? Well, when I look back, I've been doing it, like I said, since I was in my 20s and got my first, that first boyfriend to treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have, uh, I have been in and around it because I've been in Al-Anon since the 80s, um, being a sponsor to people, helping with interventions on people. I was very involved in the AA community. Um, my ex-husband and I uh, were very involved, him on the AA side and myself on the Al-Anon side. So we did interventions. We worked with families. I got certified a couple of years ago um, because I figured if I'm helping all these families. Um, and so, so I, I will tell you that my my ex-husband, when, uh, when I don't know how much of this story you even know, Mike, but um, I'll just say that my ex-husband relapsed during our marriage. He was clean and sober when we married, and then he relapsed after surgery on um pain medicine that Mm. turned to heroin and gambling and he ended up I ended up leaving with my two young daughters because I saw that that was a 
train wreck that wasn't stopping anytime soon. So I did divorce him. And then six years later was when he kind of hit his bottom. Um, he, uh, bankrupted his company and he was indicted for mail fraud and wire fraud and money laundering and he was sentenced to five years in federal prison and before he went into prison he did go to treatment because he didn't want to detox from heroin in prison mm. and so when he was headed to prison i said you know write down some stories write down some reflection um you've been in recovery for years you relapsed you have a lot of experience we can help other families so when he got out of prison um, I wrote the book, Addiction Rescue, The No BS Guide to Recovery. It's his story from his perspective. So it's uh, we both co-wrote it, co-authored it. Um, and then he immediately dedicated his life coming out of prison to helping others. And so he became an interventionist and a recovery coach. And then I uh, was working with his families, um, setting up all the interventions and the travel arrangements for him. I was doing his administrative work. And I was working with these families, talking them off the ledge, helping them know what they were going to go through and the expectations and um, what they were going to see and do along the way. And so I thought I really should get um, certified as a family addiction coach. So I did that. I work with the families. I also um, became a recovery coach at the same time. And most recently, I do interventions now as well. So um, that's how that all came about, to be doing what I'm doing. Wow, uh, that's uh, great news for your husband, your ex-husband. I mean, that's yes. it. It sounds like you know, it's you never give up, and I. It sounds like he's one of those those cases where he did not give up, and he's. It sounds like he's living a clean and sober life now. Correct. He is. Yeah, he's doing great. His um his motto, I should say, when he went into prison was, "I've done nothing but disappoint everybody in my life, and now I'm going to do everything I can to make them proud." And so that's kind of what he lives by now. And he's doing a great job. He's repaired the relationships with his our two daughters. And obviously he and I work together and that works out well because we're on a mission to help other families. And, um, and he is, he's, I think, you know, just working with the people and it's just like 12, the 12 step program, right? The more you're in it and help others, the, the more you live clean and sober. So it's just been a great path for him. Yeah, I've I've often talked about that on this this program that and if you're listening to this program and you're trying to get well, the dirty little secret is that by trying to help others actually miraculously helps you and it helps you stay sober every day. And when I talk to people that are new into the program, like I, I just recently had a, a couple of guys I started working with and <clears throat> both of these guys came into um, recovery during the COVID, where which is kind of interesting. We were in this long discussion, you know, pre-COVID and uh, post-COVID sort of recovery meeting <laughs> culture. And when I came into recovery, it was you know you always heard go to meetings, go to meetings, go to meetings, and you got that because there's meetings everywhere. Then COVID hit, and then there's meetings nowhere, and then they started the Zoom meetings and then hybrids, and but there was a, this whole crop of people that came into recovery or wanting to recovery during that period, during that transitional period, and the idea of going to meetings is kind of changed, right? Well, I can just get on Zoom or I can maybe go, maybe not go. And and it was always, it became apparent why meetings were important when you were going physically to them, but it was hard to convince people of the importance of meetings post-COVID. And 
one of the things I say to these guys, they go, you know, hey, Mike, I'm feeling good. I don't need to go to a meeting. And then finally, I just said to, to, to these guys is, I don't think you understand. This meeting is not about always about you. The meeting is about you being seen. It's about you helping other people. So the new person that just came in, how are they going to know how to get well if they don't see you at the meeting? This is about you helping other people. It's not about them helping you. It's about you helping them. And that's a concept that I think is is very important. And it sounds like that's something that uh, you and your husband, your uh, ex-husband have embraced. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite stories about um, Dr. Bob and Bill, and mm-hmm. those the founders, I'm thinking that right? Dr. Yeah, co-founders of AA. I always, yeah. yeah, I always confuse this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember one of them talking, uh, the story of one of them talking to the wife and saying, you know, I just don't think this is working. Um, these guys, we get them and then they go back out and relapse and I just don't think I can help them. And she said, but look, you guys are staying sober. So, and that was just always such a huge lesson to me that in the work is what keeps you doing well for yourself so yeah um, I, I actually think it was bill was talking to his doctor and and it might have been the doctor okay. well, that thank said you for straightening that out oh yeah <laughs> not, i mean yeah no i mean just a little nuance in it but the point is still the same you're absolutely correct and that was well they may not be sober but it, it appeared because it appeared to the doctor that hey but you're staying sober <laughs> so there may be something to this you know exactly and it was right, you yeah. just putting in the effort to help someone else and that's kind of the magic that's the the secret but uh, so great, great work. Now, this whole business of interventions, uh, I get asked about it quite a bit, and, and I've actually been on some interventions myself. And uh, now I've not been trained in it the, the way that you have. Uh, tell mm-hmm. us a bit about that. You know, what? tell us what a, an inter- intervention is and uh, maybe how that works and the effectiveness. and Because I know a lot of people are curious about that. We've seen this on television. Like, I think there was, a, there was a television show, I think, called Intervention. Was it not? Yep. Yeah, yeah. on A&E. Yeah, that's right. It's called intervention. Right. Yeah. So a lot of people, I think in the public, just general public, that's that's people's exposure to it. So uh, maybe tell us yeah. the real, real version of it. Yeah. And I will say that that is pretty accurate, other than the fact that I wouldn't want to do that because it's such a shock and a surprise to a family member anyway, that mm-hmm. to have it on national TV is just not my cup of tea. But um, it, it is a good portrayal of what happens. So um, by the time a family calls us, they've tried every resource mm-hmm. they can think of, right? We're always the last call. We're not the first call. And typically, it's going to be for drugs or alcohol because it's it's the fatal um, uses that drive people to really seek that kind of professional help for their loved one. Um, so we start uh, to gather information about their loved one. Um, obviously, we uh, figure out logistics. Um, we have to come up with a plan for... Um, who's going to be there, who's appropriate to be there, um, how is it going to be helpful or is it going to be a hindrance. Um, so that's very well thought out. Um, and then depending upon what the uh, substance use is and if there's co-occurring with mental illness, PTSD, trauma, uh, we have a network of treatment facilities around the country where we will help the family pick to go to the best place suited for their loved one. Um, 
And then it's a matter of uh, we fly to wherever they are. We always make this sure that the treatment center is not in the same state or vicinity where they are. We don't want them to be able to just leave and call their drug dealer or get a ride from a friend. Or mm. So we always put them out of state. That's um, definitely a, a prerequisite when we, we're working with families. And then we spend a day um, ahead of time with the family doing the pre-intervention. We um, have them write what we call impact letters. Um, very uh, emotionally heartfelt letters. Um, they're never shaming. They're never um, blaming. Uh, they don't talk about the bad. They only talk about what the good they remember and how they want to help them. And they want them to accept this gift that the family has arranged for them. And then during that pre-intervention day, we determine how we're going to get the loved one to the intervention, how that's going to all transpire. We do that the next day. And I will say 95% of the time it works. Um, when somebody, obviously people try to intervene on their own um, with their loved ones and it, it never works because there's the, the respect isn't there. The, there's, there's too many emotions, there's too much volatility. But when you bring in a professional from the outside and say, look, we're out of resources, we don't know what to do, but we know you need help. We brought in a professional to take over because they can give us the answers that we don't have ourselves. Um, there's just a kind of a surrender to it. Sometimes it happens pretty quickly. Sometimes it can take hours. Um, but it definitely diffuses the volatility. It diffuses their anger and resentment at the family, just having um, a third party there. So typically they're pretty successful. And we often find that if they're not successful right away immediately, because that's the goal is to get them to go that day. You know, you kind of have a plane ticket set up for them or at least in, you know what what's viable to get them to the treatment center. And we try to do it that day. If there's absolute resistance, we do find that as long as the family adheres to some of the boundaries that they put in place during that pre-intervention, that the loved one will change their mind within, um, I would say, days um, of the intervention. And oftentimes, three of the 5% will go to treatment within two weeks. So mm. it's... Um, it's everybody involved, though, and we do work heavily with those families because if they are going to, if even if the loved one goes to treatment or not, they really need to start working on their behaviors, and we spend that pre-intervention day working on that, and you set up a boundaries letter so that if their loved one doesn't go, these are the boundaries and consequences. If you choose not to go, we choose not to live this way and be held hostage anymore by your addiction. And um, these are these are the new rules we're going to play by. And as long as they can stick to that and it starts making the addict a little uncomfortable in their life, they see a need to change. So that's, uh, that's our, also our job is to help the family create those consequences if their loved one is not going to seek treatment. Yeah, I think that's so important. And, and over the years, as I've sort of shifted my focus directly from the addict to the family member, I think that, that it's become clearer to me that the behavior of the addict, it, it, you just use the term, uh, you're holding the, the family hostage. And mm -hmm. we get, and maybe run this by you, because I get asked this a lot. And I, it's great to have a resource like you, because again, this is not, the family side of this is not my specialty. But I will oftentimes 
the family, you know, when, when I start working with someone, the family will try to get involved. And that's one of the first things I notice is I'll be, I, I'll be dealing with someone and then the wife or the girlfriend or the family member or, you know, the spouse, whoever calls me up and they want, well, let me tell you this and let me tell you that and let me tell you what he's doing and um, what do you think I should do? Do you think I should leave him? And that's always the big thing is, you know, should I stay in this relationship or should I leave? And that, of course, is a very dangerous area for any one of us to, to tread into. And I, I try not to involve my Myself in that because I can't make that decision. I mean, I would never want anyone to stay in a, an abusive relationship. You should not stay in an abusive uh, relationship, particularly if it's physical. But um, beyond that, um, those are those are decisions that you have to make for yourself. And what do you? What sort of advice do you give to clients when they they ask you? Because I'm sure they do ask you that mm-hmm. type of question. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really a matter of you know, coaching that person to the point of where they can make um, a really well-educated decision for themselves. They're so, when they ask, when they're at the point where they ask that question, they're so wrapped up in the negative aspects of their relationship with their addict that it seems hopeless. And I do want to say that there is always hope. And so just getting a yes or no answer to a question like that is impossible. Mm-hmm. It takes working through, it takes background, it takes, um, you know, setting boundaries, what you're willing to tolerate because in relationships with addict, we all end up tolerating a lot more than we thought we'd ever tolerate, right? Mm-hmm. Cause the addict just keeps pushing that line farther and farther out in the sand for us. You know, we draw a line, they cross it. So we move our line. So it's a process of getting back to the person they were before. And is this relationship going to serve you or is it not going to serve you? And what are you holding on to? And why are you holding on to it? And why have you stepped into this role and why are you tolerating it? And, you know, there's always hope for the loved one to get help. We never want to give up on them. Um, but there could come a point where there's a point of no return mm-hmm. if that loved one doesn't seek help long enough. So, so you can't, like you say, you never want to tread on, yes, you should leave this relationship. This is a bad, toxic relationship for you. I mean, any relationship with an addict is going to be toxic. So it's really working through and coaching them uh, through all those uh, areas to figure out what's going to serve them best. Mm. because there's there's a scary side to both of them and when I left my husband you know everybody thinks oh it's going to be greener on the other side and I just kept saying you know I don't care if it's not greener on the other side I just don't want to live in this grass anymore <laughs> you know so um, you you really have to get to a point where it's like I know for myself this is the right thing to do mm-hmm. and that's and coaching is what I do to help them get there to figure those answers out for themselves I think that this centers around, and you have more experience in, in this than I do. What do you think drives this staying with someone, even though there it may be an abusive relationship, or you know, whether whether it's physically or emotionally, um, is it just this idea that you you feel that you can fix the person? Do you feel guilt? Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure from a lot of parents you hear, and I've because I have heard this from parents that hey, if I if I uh, move move out. If I have my my child move out of the house, or if I distance myself, they're going to die. So therefore, yeah. I'm I'm going to stay with them. And how do you how do you address that? And what are your thoughts on that? Because I hear that quite a bit. Hey, you know, Mike, yeah, I can't I can't let them go. They'll they'll die. I mean, it's somehow and you know, and I and I'm thinking, but it's not your you're not solely responsible for. They're already dying in their addiction. Yeah, yeah, but it's tough. Yeah. I understand it's tough. It is. It, it, it's the most of, like you say, when you're t- talking with, about parents that have a addicted child, um, and especially if there's mental health issues involved, um, because 
they're depending on them taking their medications and staying stable. And if they know if they're not in the house, they, they don't know if they'll take their medication. They don't know if they'll make the right choices and decisions. So, so it is really difficult. Um, but it's about steering your loved one to get the help they need and not making them as comfortable. And it's always more difficult when it's a child. So, um, and those are the things we have to work through. But you're absolutely right. It is not your responsibility, especially once they're an adult, to make those those choices and the beauty about offering an intervention is if they say no to an intervention they're saying no to getting well because you're offering them you know especially if they're living in your home and you're saying i'm not going to tolerate you living in the home and taking us holding us hostage and doing all these things that you're doing but we are offering you a warm bed and a shelter and a great place to go heal yourself so if they say no to that they're they're kicking themselves out you're not kicking them out you're giving them a a great alternative when we have to help the families see it from that perspective Mm. um so you say you this is about 95 percent success rate of the people going to to treatment um yep the now a lot of your a lot of the people that you work with are these repeat customers or how often does that happen with you well, typically you're doing an intervention one time. Mm-hmm. Um, there are repeats as far as relapses and going back to treatment. Now, mm-hmm. when we do interventions, we, like I said, they've usually been through treatment before. It's kind of a last-ditch effort to save this person's life. We're going to recommend not doing a 30-day program. We're going to recommend long-term, and we work with facilities that provide long-term care mm-hmm. because – you know, one of my big things is 30 days in treatment is just the beginning. Right? Yeah, I mean, you yeah. can't undo years of bad behavior in 30 days. So um, we work with treatment centers that aren't, you know, the $50,000 a month and want them to stay for three months. We're working with facilities that are more reasonable per month and will keep them long term. Um, the last two I did um, were two gals. They, they like to keep them for at least six months, if not nine to 12 months. So, um to prevent the relapse because the longer, as you know, they can stay sober in sobriety and in recovery, the better their chance of not relapsing is. So um, by the time they do it, we're doing an intervention, uh, oftentimes they've been through treatment for 30 days and it doesn't work. They're, I wouldn't say necessarily continually relapsing, but these are relapse victims. So yeah. we're trying to get them more long-term care. Yeah. That's interesting that you've, you mentioned that because it's something that I've been thinking about, uh, quite a while, particularly after, well, I, you know, I, my own experience in treatment and then uh, doing my internship, you know, where I spent a year working at a facility, it was a 28 day facility and looking at the relapse rates in that facility, it, it caused me to do a lot of thinking about this whole, uh, and when we say 30, 20, uh, when we say 30 day days, model. it's basically 28 days, but, um, yep. and that's kind of an interesting historical reason. Uh, maybe I'll do a podcast at some point talking about how, <laughs> how in the heck did we come up with 28 days? Like where'd that come from? But, uh, it, it basically a month in, in treatment and you're right. And I've seen it, my, I've experienced it and I've seen it with my own eyes. Um, we, we have this model, this 28 day model that we're using that is, uh, the data is pretty clear that that's not an effective model, but yet we continue to use it. And uh, it seems to me like in the next sort of wave of recovery treatment, um, I think what you're going to see that is the the standard model is going to be something that is 
much longer term. And and I'm starting to look uh, hard at the sober living houses, extended living houses, mm-hmm. uh, facilities mm-hmm. where people can live longer term. Uh, I know a lot of the patients don't want to, a lot of the patients that, that I worked with over the last year, that was one of the recommendations that we, we put into their treatment plan. And, and of course, they're always resistant to that. Nobody nobody wants to live in, in a facility for that that long. But the data mm-hmm. shows that that's what is necessary. That is that is absolutely what is necessary. The longer that you can be in treatment, the higher your chances are of getting well. And, and it sounds like that was your experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that model came up because somewhere along the way, someone said that you can change a, a habit and I don't know, 21 days or something. And, mm-hmm. um, and now research has shown that it does take longer than that to change a habit. Um, and, you know, from the get go, when we talk to families, it's like, this is a practice to be done for the rest of your life. You know, mm-hmm. just like if you're a doctor and you have a practice or you're have a practice of yoga or a practice of meditation, it's something you practice every day. And that's what recovery is. It's a practice and a mindfulness every day to practice your recovery. Um, and we talk about that in the book, Addiction Rescue. Um, that's one of the five steps is the aftercare, which is so essential. Yeah. And, you know, I t- I'll point out something else, too, that uh, I, I take issue with, with this notion when they put it, because I think that they're, because people don't really understand addiction, they do this comparison between a habit and an addiction. They, they actually are different. I mean, an addiction is a disease. You know, if you subscribe mm-hmm. to the disease model of addiction, which I do, we aren't talking about, you know, this is a, I'm going to get in the habit of putting my car keys over here as, as opposed to over here. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a deadly progressive disease that uh, is a disease of the mind and the body. It's much more complicated than that. You know, so it's not a matter of, of uh, as simple as just changing um, that habit. But I think that the people that that started this whole notion of a 28 day model. I think that's what they were thinking of. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, I, I, I just don't think that they're they're Those are apples and oranges to me. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And that makes perfect sense the way you say it as mm-hmm. well. And I do subscribe to the fact that it's a progressive disease. Yeah. I, and I, I've experienced it and I, and I don't think there's anybody in recovery that won't tell you uh, if for example i've got um last night i was at a meeting last night and there was a gentleman that picked up a 30-day chip and it was said by numerous people in the meeting hey that is fantastic that right there that you just picked up is the hardest chip it's the hardest chip to pick up other than the the 24-hour chip obviously but then but the next one is the 30-day chip and and i feel that way and everybody i know feels that way the picking up a 10-year chip is almost easier than picking up the 30-day chip because there's something about the pull the physiological pull the psychological pull there's a lot of factors that go into it and you know oftentimes in early recovery not only are you dealing with the physiological aspect of of your recovery but that's generally when you're you're dealing with the mess that's been created too whether it's a, a divorce losing the kids losing a job uh, maybe legal issues, a whole host of things that can happen that, that addiction brings you towards. And, and often, so right as your body is fighting you the most and your mind is fighting you the most, then you're dealing with all the mess that was created too. So that makes early, early recovery hard. And the longer someone can stay in recovery, I believe, the, the, long, the, the more time that your body, your brain uh, has to heal because it does it has to heal there's a lot of damage done to your body there's a lot of vitamins uh minerals that aren't absorbing your body that have to be replaced 
um, uh, serotonin levels have dropped, GABA levels have dropped. All that has to be replaced. And the longer you can be in a, in a place where you are, uh, quote unquote, forced to, <laughs> to not drink or drug, however you want to term that, I think the better your chances are of being into long-term in recovery. So that's something to consider. And I, I tell you, I'm really stressing that more and more with people that I work with. Longer is better when it comes to treatment. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the numbers and the statistics prove that as well. And I think it's uh, five years. Mm -hmm. uh, there's very low uh, relapse rate if somebody can make it five years. Mm -hmm. um, but and I, and I want to reiterate, too, that the brain is damaged and it cannot produce the GABA and the serotonin and the dopamine that it once did. But the beauty is, is that our brains are neuroplastic and we can re they repair themselves. But most substances, it takes 12 to 14 months to repair the brain mm -hmm. to get those levels back where they need to be. So, um, yeah, 30 days is is a big feat because you're working against all of that. But the longer you can go and clear the cobwebs and get that brain to recover and start um, filling your head with new codes, right? Because our brains just kind of work on codes like a computer. It's just a, a loop. And so you have to change the triggers and the behaviors and the perceptions and the longer you can do that and recode the brain, um, the more success you're going to have because it's like you said, it's not just about getting past the physiological um, addiction. Um, it's about repairing the damage that has been done. Mm -hmm. Now do you, when, after you, you do this intervention and the loved one goes off to treatment, do, do you continue the relationship with the family? Or how does that absolutely. work? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. We always make sure that the families get into their own program, um, whether it's coaching, we uh, can set them up in where Al-Anon meetings are in their area, um, addiction therapists. We always recommend that the families um, have to get into their own recovery. Because here's the thing. You send your loved one off to treatment, and let's just say it is for 30 days, and they knew, they learn a new language, so to speak, right? And they come back speaking French, and you're still speaking English because it's an immersive program for 30 days, you're going to, it's not going to work. It's just a recipe for relapse. I mean, family has to get on the same page. And I always tell my families, you've got 30 days, 90 days, whatever it is to get your act together and figure this out, or they're going to come home and it's just going to be the same thing cyclical all over again. So yeah, it's highly important to work with those families and help them understand their roles and how to change their roles, because that's exactly what your loved one's doing in their recovery program over at treatment. Yeah, it's a very, very, very good point. Everybody has to change. And everybody. Yep. We we always say in, in recovery, we don't expect you to change much. We just expect you to change everything. Yeah, that's right. We, we, yeah, it's not a whole lot. We just basically, I mean, we, we laugh, but it, there's there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, it's, we really, it was our, it was our thinking, our, our best thinking on our best day got us to where we are. And that includes the families. That's not just the, the addict, but our best thinking right. on our best day got us here. And we, it, it was, it was our thinking that got us here. So we, it's our thinking that's going to get us out of here too. And we have to change all of that. And that's, that's everybody. That's everybody in this whole ecosystem of, a uh, of addiction has to change. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so we definitely stress that to our families. Yeah. Well, anything that we didn't cover that you think is important for the listeners to hear? Um. I would say the one thing I always try to help family members see is that they have to learn to separate their loved one from the disease of addiction, yeah. right? And it's just like having kids. Like, we love our kids, but we don't like when they're behaving naughty. And that's exactly how we have to look at it um, with a loved one with an addiction. 
and uh, you can be resentful and angry and mad at the addiction, but it's something that has taken over the loved one, and they become in, it becomes involuntary, and they don't have a choice and will against it. So, uh, steering them to find the help they need is the best thing we can do, and just never give ho- up hope on that loved one because there's always hope. Mm-hmm. That is that is so true. Um, I have seen miracles, and I have seen. Oh, I think I'm an example of that. You know, one of those people. It just took forever and ever, and you know, we always say that you know, it's like it's not working. It's not working, and I hear that all the time. I hear that in recovery. You know, I tried this, Mike, and it didn't work. And what what really the truth is, it, it's not that the program doesn't work. It's you're not working the program in reality. And Absolutely. I think the hard part in the beginning is getting the person to act. Look, you can't just. Uh, and I'll just use AA as an example, but there are, and, and if you're listening, you need to understand there's a lot of different programs that are out there, but I'm just using an example here. Um, when you come to AA and I'll hear people say, oh, it doesn't work for me. And I'll go, yeah, okay, well, what's the name of your, who's your sponsor? Well, I don't have a sponsor. Um, when's the last meeting? What step are you working? Yeah, yeah. What, what step, step are you working? On? You know, what, um, tell me about, you know, just pick a chapter of the book. Tell me a little bit about it. Well, I've never read the big book. Okay. All right, but but you're telling me that this program doesn't work, but you don't have a sponsor, you're not working the steps, and you've never read that book that was given to you. But the program doesn't work. Is that is that what I'm hearing? And then I think it, it sheds light on on the truth. No, the truth is you're not you're not working it, and um, and that's true of the family programs as well. So the key is going to yeah. be just how do we get people to actually do this and worry? You don't just, and by the way, just showing up to meetings, just so people know, just showing up to meetings is not technically working the program. There's a lot of work outside of the meetings that, that you have to do as well. But getting oh, people to do that is the challenge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people, especially when they, uh, you know, agree to go away for 30 days and straighten up their access, speak, it's, it's in a last ditch effort to, get their stuff back, right. To get their kids back, to get their job Mm -hmm. back, to, you know, get their family back, whatever it might be. And, um, and that is not working a program, you know, if they're just looking at it because they just want to get their things back, that is not the right attitude. And you're a hundred percent right. When you say the program works, if you work it and the people that say it doesn't work for me are not working the program. And it does, and it does take work. You know, I always say you got to, as hard as you would work to get high, to call your dealer in the middle of the night, to go to sketchy areas, to do whatever you got to do to get high, you got to go to those lengths to get clean and sober Mm -hmm. and in recovery. You got to be willing to pick up that phone in the middle of the night and call your sponsor instead of your drug deal. You got to be willing to do the hard work, whatever it is, if you want (laughs) to live a different way and stop feeling the way you're feeling. Yeah. I had a guy say that to me the other night. He goes, man. I drove 45 minutes to come to this meeting and he was proud of himself and, and I'm not disparaging it. I'm glad the guy, and I, and I looked at him and I said, did you drive 45 minutes to, to drink? In his case, it's alcohol. It's like, yeah. And I said, I bet you didn't blink in doing that. Yeah. I said, but now, now we need to give you a trophy because you drove 45 minutes to come to a meeting. <laughs> you know, when you were using, you did, that, that meant nothing. <laughs> and, and I, the, the, the point was made. I think the individual was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, but it, it is funny, yeah. right? Yeah, that, that, that people yeah. say, yeah, you should, pay, hey, you know, do you know how far I drove to get here tonight? Yeah. 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 Good. Nothing stopped over. you when you were using nothing. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> yep. That's you hit my point nail on the head. So. Yeah. And I'm not being critical. I was the I was the same no, way. But, no. but it is funny how we point these things out. You know, when you when you finally get into recovery, you point these things out. And it's like, yeah. You know, there's a, so much there's so much in recovery that makes sense once you point it out, you know. 
Uh, absolutely. Well, yeah. uh, remind everybody once again um, how they can get hold of you, uh, your websites, uh, any other social media that you're on, because I know there's going to be a lot of listeners that, that want to reach out to you to get some more information. Oh, and I would welcome that and be happy to um, consult, talk to, get you on the, the path to your own recovery um, anytime. So uh, you can email me at Dana at DanaGolden.com. Um, again, the quiz, if you want to take the quiz and figure out your family role um, in relation to the addict is DanaGolden.com backslash quiz. Um, the website where uh, you can find uh, actually my ex-husband, our intervention services, sober companion, sober escort services, as well as coaching is the life recovery um, You can find me on LinkedIn, Dana Golden. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. And that's Dana Golden, and that's G-O-L-D-E-N dot com, correct? Yes. Uh, yes. And the reason I say that is because I've online, uh, there are some, and she and I were talking about this before we came on, there's some different versions, but it's with an E-N on there. Yeah. So Dana yeah, Golden That's the newest com. version. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> yeah. fantastic. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and shedding some light on the family programs, and keep up the good work that you're doing. It's so important. Well, Thank you, Mike, and you too. I mean, we're all in this together, fighting the fight. So, oh, absolutely, appreciate your work as well. Yeah, well, and and thanks well, for having me on. Uh, we have to have you on again down the road. We're definitely gonna to. have to do it. Well, thanks, yeah, and let uh, me know. I'm always available to be an asset to your listeners. Oh, thanks again. And so, everybody, this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. And according to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. And FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. And find out more at FHEHealth.com, FHEHealth.com. So, as I always like to say, I don't represent any group, although I've talked about groups. Like, we talked about Al-Anon, we talked about AA. We don't represent any of these groups or any group. We're just giving those examples out for you, Um, you know, check all the groups out for yourself and i i don't represent anyone other than myself and that and that same goes for for dana my only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what i've done because it's helped me and maybe it'll help you as well and if i've said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with then just discard it but try to take any information you can use for yourself and help others as well that's what we do in recovery we help ourselves along the way uh and we try to impart that knowledge on to others because maybe it will help them. So with that, please visit our Facebook page, Recovery is Possible, and our website, VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com, and let me know how I'm doing, and let me know if there's a topic that you're you're interested in hearing about because I'd love to hear from you. You guys take care of yourselves, and we will see you next time.